The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Whoever rules the waves rules the world. Whoever rules the waves rules the world. That is the thesis of Alfred Thayer Mahan's book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. He was a naval strategist, wrote it in 1890, and he said, whoever rules the waves rules the world. And he was meditating on the effect of British sea power on confining Napoleon to the continent about 80 years before that. And how because the French did not have a strong navy, not strong enough at least, compared to the British, they couldn't expand uh, Napoleon's reign. And he was just extending it uh, beyond that several centuries back and just talking about the need uh, for naval might. He was writing at a time toward the end of the 19th century when the British Empire was at its absolute apex, when the sun never set on the British Empire, and in which uh, British people sang somewhat of an unofficial uh, national anthem written in 1740 by the British poet James Thompson entitled Rule Britannia. And in the refrain... It's rule Britannia, Britannia rule the waves, Britons never will be slaves. And so they projected uh, British power by naval might all around the world. Well, it's an interesting thesis. The one who rules the waves rules the world. I happen to think it's true. I just happen to think Jesus rules the waves. I think he displays that in the text today. It's interesting in Daniel's... uh, prophecy and vision. He had a vision of the rise and fall of the world. You remember how Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue with the gold and silver and the bronze and the iron and the clay. And it was a picture of the rise and fall of world empires. Later in his book in Daniel 7, he's looking out over the sea and the sea is troubled by the waves. The four winds of heaven are churning up the great sea and up out of it come four beasts, each of them representing four world empires. John saw the same thing in Revelation 13 as the dragon was standing by the shore and up out of the sea comes the beast, which I think is the final world empire, the rule of the Antichrist in Revelation 13. But it's interesting that both the four beasts of Daniel and this final beast in Revelation 13 come up out of the troubled sea, the churning sea. And I think it represents humanity, the the churning of the nations in in, in its rise and fall and its ebbing and all of its wickedness and rebellion and all of the lack of peace we feel inside our hearts. I think a turbulent sea is a good representation of human history. And I think the theme of the book of Daniel is really the theme of all of world history, and that is that God Almighty reigns over heaven and earth, and He will someday clearly establish the kingdom of Jesus Christ over all the earth. And so it says in Daniel 2.44, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. This is the theme, I think, of the whole Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. And especially the king of the kingdom of heaven, who is Jesus. He will reign forever and ever. What is the nature of his power? How great is it? The nature of his omnipotence, I think we see it in our text today. Whoever rules the waves rules the world. And I say that Jesus, Jesus rules the waves and he will forevermore. And isn't that encouraging as we look at the turbulence of our present day? 
And we think that it's still true that it's a fit metaphor for human history, the churning of the waves that cannot rest, that churn up mire and mud, as Isaiah said. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But there is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And what an image in our text today. Jesus walking on the water, walking through the, the, the waves, through the billows, with omnipotence holding him up. The power of God. There was another... British poet who wrote something else about an empire, and it was Isaac Watts. Long before uh, James Thompson wrote Rule Britannia, this is what Isaac Watts wrote. He said, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. That, I believe, is the true theme of the great passage we're looking at today. This passage shows and displays so beautifully the power of Jesus Christ over all things. And it is my purpose today to beguile you into a greater estimation of that power. That you would have a sense of just how powerful Jesus is over the winds and the waves. Now we begin with Jesus' essential, quiet and peaceful communion with his heavenly Father. Let's set the thing in context. We already saw in John chapter 14 the, the martyrdom of John the Baptist, how John was beheaded at uh, King Herod's birthday party after the dance of a dancing girl. She said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. John's disciples came and took John's body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard this, he got in a boat, withdrew privately to a solitary place. So he's wanting to be alone for prayer. Unfortunately, for that purpose, at least at that moment, when he lands, he sees a huge crowd, 5,000 men plus women and children. So we saw last week the great compassion of Jesus to put his own needs aside and to minister in a threefold way to that crowd. In Mark's gospel, he had great compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he taught them many things. So first, his teaching ministry. And then uh, we saw Jesus' healing ministry, a river of miracles flowing out. And there was nothing he could not do. There was no sickness he could not heal. And we see that great power. And then he wasn't done. The disciples wanted to send the crowds away so they could buy themselves some food. But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And then we see the great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. That was a full coverage of all of their needs by Jesus. The preaching of the gospel, the healing of the sick, the feeding of the hungry. Every need met. But now it's Jesus' time. The time has come for him to send the crowd away and for him to get back into that place of great power and communion with his heavenly Father, the essential communion of Jesus. And so he sends the crowd away. Look at verse uh, 22. It says, Immediately uh, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other uh, side while he dismissed the crowd. <clears throat> now, you really kind of have to put it all together, but there's really somewhat of a battle of wills going on here. Because in, in John 6.14, it says after Jesus had fed the 5,000, the crowds wanted to take him by force and make him king. So they want to force Jesus to be king right there and then in their own way after their own pattern. Jesus forces the disciples to get in the boat and then forcefully dismisses the crowd. Who's in charge here? Jesus is in charge. He's not going to be made king in their way. He has his own timetable. And he must go to the cross. And hallelujah for that. Hallelujah that he does it his way. Because if he didn't do that, none of us would be saved. He's not going to be king that way, but he will be king. He is king. 
And he will reign forever and ever. But first he must go to the cross. So he's not going to follow their way. He's not going to be forced into their agenda. No, instead he's going to force the disciples to get in the boat. The Greek is strong. And he's going to dismiss the crowd. And so off they go. And then Jesus returns to solitary prayer. He goes up by himself, alone, up on the mountain. And it's night by this time. It's dark. You can imagine Jesus uh, by the light of the moon or by the light of the stars making his way up the mountainside. And there he is in solitary prayer with his heavenly father. This was his regular habit. In Mark 1.35, it says that Jesus, a great while before dawn, while it was still dark, got up and left the house where he was staying and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. That's Mark 1.35. Another time, after healing a leper, such a huge crowd surrounded Jesus that he couldn't get any rest. In Luke 5:15 and 16, it says news about this healed leper spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This was his regular habit. He would withdraw from the crowd, he'd get alone, and he'd spend time in prayer. Crowds were overwhelming. Another time in Luke 6:12, he spent all night alone in solitary prayer to his heavenly Father, then came down off the mountain and designated his 12 apostles after spending the whole night in prayer with his father. And so Jesus regularly had this pattern of withdrawal into solitary places, sometimes mountains, solitude to pray. This was his essential communion with his father. And I believe this was the true source of Jesus' power for ministry. This was the true source of the way that he ministered in power. Jesus did a river of miracles before and toward the end of our text here. Uh, everybody who comes, even those who just touch the hem of his garment, they're healed. It's just a river of power flowing through Jesus. What was the source of that river? Well, Jesus told us. He openly claimed it was the Father working in him that accomplished these things. That's what he said. And we have to take his word for it. In consistent, solitary communion with his Father, Jesus got his daily work assignments. And he also got from his heavenly father the power in order to do those assignments and then went out in the power of the spirit and did the things the father told him to do. This is precisely what Jesus said happened. In John 14, he said, don't you believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? There's a perfect union between the father and the son. The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the father living in me who is doing his work. And he says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So Jesus is claiming that the very words he spoke and certainly the miracles he did were the result of the Father living in him powerfully. He also said in John 10, 32, he said to his enemies, I have shown you many great works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? So it was the Father doing his work in Jesus. Again, in John 8, 28, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. So Jesus got alone with, with his heavenly Father, and he listened to the Father. The Father gave him the words to speak, the works to do, and he went off and did it. Let me just stop for a moment and ask about your own personal life. Is this your regular habit? Do you regularly get alone with the heavenly Father in solitary prayer? Do you, do, you, do you spend time alone with him to renew yourself spiritually? Or are you stronger than Jesus? Are you wiser than him? You know just what to do and you've got the strength to do it. <laughs> I think we're easily deceived in this. Do we really know just what to do? And do we really have the strength to do it? 
And maybe you don't have a mountainside or some solitary place where you can go. Jesus in Matthew 6 said, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father's unseen. That could be your solitary place. The question is, are you doing it? Jesus did this regularly. This was his essential communion with his Father. The next in our account, however, we see the disciples' peril and fear. Jesus is up there in serenity and in peaceful fellowship with his Heavenly Father. But the disciples are in a boat in the middle of a storm. And what a beautiful contrast that is. Oh, how this text draws me toward allegory. I'm going to resist it. But I do want, I do want to apply it to our lives. So those of you that are, are the allegory police, you can come talk to me afterwards. But there's going to be some application here for us today, okay? But what a picture we have of Jesus up on the mountain, the disciples way down below in a boat, and they're being tossed and... Uh, turned by the waves, Jesus in peaceful, heavenly communion with his Father, he sees the problem and descends to help them. And I tell you, Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of God and is always living to intercede for us, no matter what trouble we're going through. I think it's right for us to think that way. And that Jesus is able to help us in the midst of our troubles. Well, we have the disciples and they are in fear. Fear and peril. Now, fear is intrinsic to our suffering here. Few of us go through a week without feeling some fear. Perhaps some of us don't go through a day without feeling some kind of fear. Now, fears are connected to the danger of physical or psychological pain for us as people. Now, animals have physiological reactions. You know, you see a, a deer, a film of a deer, let's say, uh, drinking at, a, at a, a, a pond or something like that, and then jerking up the head and looking, sniffing, and then back down, jerking up again, or a squirrel. Try to catch a squirrel. I love watching a little five-year-old try to ch catch a squirrel. They'll never do it. I mean, the squirrels are quick, and they know what they're all about, and they're all about survival, and they're quick, and they're able to do that. They have instincts towards survival. I don't know if we call them fear, but they're designed, they're able uh, to uh, save themselves. Well, human fear is different, though. It has to do with our intellect. It has to do with our imaginations and our anxieties as much as thinking that we're in imminent physical danger. Most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, it's not the case that we think we're about to perish. Sometimes happens, like in a car situation when you know, something unexpected quickly happens. But most of our fears are tied to our thoughts about the future. And something's about to happen to us that we don't want it to happen. It might be a sickness. It might take something from us a loved one from us, or our own health, our ability to, uh, to thrive in this world. We might be afraid of that. It might be uh, financial dangers. We might be thinking that ruin is facing us. We might have some financial issues. Many times, however, our fear amounts to nothing at all. Isn't that the case? We fear for no reason. We spend a lot of emotion, a lot of time, a lot of anxiety, afraid about something that never even happens. I remember one time when we were missionaries in, in Japan. I'll never forget this. The phone rang at 3 in the morning. That can't be good. You know what I'm saying? It cannot be good when the phone rings at 3 in the morning. And I remember waking up and, and not really clearly knowing anything. Where I was, what was going on. But it was, after a few seconds, I realized the phone is ringing and it is the middle of the night. And so immediately I was awake and I was afraid. Because it's got to be bad news. It's got to be. Somebody's died. Something very, very serious at 3 in the morning. So it was with a great amount of trembling that I picked up that phone. And it was a sweet lady who was in a Bible study that we used to have back in Massachusetts. What a sweet lady. She used to send us care packages and all that. She hoped that she called before the kids went down for their afternoon nap. 
She was hoping that she caught us before then. Remember that? And uh, I was like, oh, you did. Didn't I? I didn't want to hurt her feelings. I didn't want to give her a basic lesson in geography that the globe is round and we're in Japan and when the sun's shining and bright there in Topsfield, Massachusetts, it's really the middle of the night for us. All right? I didn't want... I figured the time for geography for her was over and, you know, that was okay. And so we had a wonderful conversation and I hung up and uh, she actually never called again at three in the morning. That was a good thing. Um, But, I mean, all of the thoughts that were in my mind as I was picking up that, that telephone, never... Nothing came of it. Nothing. And wouldn't you admit that that's the way it is with most of your fears. But some of them are genuine. Some of them really are genuine. Things we're afraid of, and they actually do come to pass, and they cause us great harm, and they bring us great pain and suffering. And some of it doesn't go away for a long time if it ever does go away in this world. And it's painful. And we go through those experiences, and we're afraid to go through it again. Once burned, twice shy. And so we become afraid. Fear is part of life in this sin-cursed world. Well, these were, at least some of them, professional fishermen in great danger on the sea. Now, I don't know that this storm was as bad as the storm where Jesus was asleep in the boat and stilled the storms by commanding, Uh, but it's a bad storm. The disciples were afraid, I think, and they're in the midst of the storm. And uh, if you look at verse 24, it says, "...the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it." John 6.18 says, "...a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough." You know, the peaceful calm of the Sea of Galilee can quickly be transformed by a violent storm. It has to do with the way that the hills and mountains around are shaped. And it can just kind of funnel wind down in there and it swirls around and it really can whip it up into quite a storm. Uh, Actually, recently, within the last 15 years, there was a a wave about 10 feet high of water that came down and crashed onto Tiberias and wiped out a lot of the storefront property there. And and that's just because of the, of the, the way that the wind works in that area. So this is a bad storm. And the disciples were rightly afraid. But it wouldn't be long in this account before they're more afraid of Jesus than they are of the storm. Look at verses 25 through 27. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, their superstitions fit into this fear. They think it's a ghost. The theology of ghost does not receive much support from the Bible. That's an understatement, okay? (laughs) All right, but they thought it was a ghost. And as a matter of fact, at a more significant moment in redemptive history, this issue is going to come up again, namely at the resurrection. And doubts arise in their minds and they thought they were seeing a ghost and it was Jesus risen. And he has to prove to them that he's not a spirit. This is in Luke 24. And so he eats a piece of broiled fish. He shows them his hands and his side. He wants them to interact with him physically to prove he has actually defeated death. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. But here they're having fear and they cry out in, in fear. And they're afraid that Jesus is a ghost. Fear is the great enemy of our faith. Over 100 times in the Bible, God or an angel of God or a prophet of God or a leader from God assures the people of God, be not afraid. Over 100 times in the Bible. It is a repeated theme. Fear is the great enemy of our faith. God is constantly laboring through the word against our fears because like termites... Fears are constantly laboring against the structure of our faith. 
And so we have got to work on this issue of fear. God wants us to trust and not be afraid. How many Psalms pick this up as a theme? Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to, do to me? You know, I, I get the sense there that the psalmist in Psalm 56 is preaching to himself. He's proclaiming truth to himself so that he's talking himself out of fear. And we need to do that. So important in the Christian life to learn how to take scriptural truth and preach it to yourself. You are definitely your own most important preacher. Far more than I am. You are. Preach to yourself against your own fears. Next we see Christ's compassion and power. As he's sitting up on the mountain, he sees his disciples. He sees them. Now, we don't get that in Matthew's account, but we do get it in Mark's account. In Mark 6, uh, verse uh, 47, 48, it says, When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he, Jesus, was alone in the land. Verse 48, He saw the disciples straining at their oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking in the lake. So what an image. There's Jesus up on the mountain, and he looks down and he sees the trouble the disciples are in. I tell you that God sees everything you're going through. He sees all things. The Lord Jesus sees everything you're going through. Now, I don't know the nature of his vision at that time, in the days of his, his incarnate ministry on earth. Maybe God the Father gave him a supernatural vision of the disciples in the middle of the lake. Maybe he could just see them. But he saw them. He looked. And, and seeing their peril, he comes to their rescue. It's such a unifying theme in this text. He sees the disciples' peril and comes to their rescue. He sees Simon Peter's peril and comes to his rescue. He sees the people of Gennesaret, their peril, and he comes to their rescue. Above all, he sees your peril and mine, and he comes to our rescue. This is what he's doing. And so he comes to them walking on the water. Now, we use that expression, walk on water, as to do something extraordinary, something that it can't can't be explained. Talk even about politicians, you know. They, they expected him or her to walk on water, this kind of thing. You know, it's really blasphemous. Only Jesus can do it. And those empowered by Jesus, apparently. I have to add that because of this text. But Jesus has the power to walk on water. Now, people talk about the laws of physics. That expression you'll not find in the Bible. You'll not find it in the Bible. That's just the way God consistently chooses to work in this world. And I'm not saying that science isn't something we can, we can pursue. We can. But God isn't subject to those so-called laws. He can do whatever He wants. He's not asking permission of the water to hold Him up. He's not doing a study on buoyancy here. Or surface tension. My goodness, what some unbelievers will do to passages like this. The ever-present and moving sandbar just below the surface. I've never seen a sandbar like that, and certainly not one that went all the way across the whole lake. What a strange thing. One study group in, at Florida State University, uh, led by one particularly creative professor, was talking about how if the atmospheric and water conditions are right, you can get actually small chunks of ice floating. And he thinks that explains what happened. Imagine Jesus, you know, kind of surfing on the ice, getting across. That's not convincing to me. And then how does Peter get his own little piece of ice just outside the boat? It doesn't make any sense. The lengths that people will do to undercut what the Spirit of God is doing in this text, which is giving us a display of Jesus' power. He can do all things. He's walking on the water because He's God, because He can do it. And so, when they see uh, Jesus, they cry out. 
thinking he's a ghost, and he assures him, assures them that he is Christ, that he is God. He sees Peter's peril and comes to his rescue. We'll deal with that in a moment. But when he gets across the, uh, the lake and lands at Gennesaret, his heart is moved with compassion for those people as well. He sees their peril. And his ministry extends to them as well. And it's really quite remarkable. Look at verses 34 through 36. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. And so the crush of people resumed. That's Jesus' life. That was his ministry. He has those occasional times alone with his father, but mostly he's surrounded by needy people. And he sees the peril, he's moved out of compassion, and he wants to heal them and to take care of them. There is nothing that our Savior cannot do. Touching the hem of the garment and they're cured, the power of Jesus, that's what's displayed in Matthew 14. But above all, he looks and sees our peril and he comes to our rescue. What is the nature of our peril? Well, we could talk about the winds and the waves of your life. We can talk about the, the trials that you're facing. But let's go right to the heart of the matter. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains came, rose, uh, rains fell, and the streams rose and blew and beat against that house. But it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But uh, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice like a foolish man who built his house on the sand... And the rains fell on that house and the streams uh, rose and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. I, I think this is Judgment Day. And the only way we're going to survive Judgment Day, the storm of Judgment Day, is Jesus seeing our peril and coming to our rescue. And this is precisely what he has done at the cross. Do you know him as your Savior? Have you trusted in him? Do you know for certain that your house is built on a foundation that will survive the peril of Judgment Day? Has Jesus reached down and, draw, and drawn you up out of judgment by His saving grace? Oh, trust in Him. Don't leave this place without trusting in Christ. Call on Him as Peter does. Lord, save me! Call on Him and He will rescue you. This is Jesus' ministry. He sees peril and He rescues. He saves. Trust in Him. Now let's talk for a moment about Peter's supernatural journey. Now what a fascinating thing is that. Now let me ask you a question. If you had been with them in the boat, would you have been Peter getting up and walking or would you have been those that stayed in the boat and waited to see how it turned out with Peter? <laughs> First of all, would the idea even have popped in your mind? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Would that have even come to your mind? What an amazing man Peter was. Aren't you glad for Peter and all of his successes and even more, perhaps, for his failures? Aren't you glad to see what God can do through a person like him? What God can do through someone like you? But there's Peter in his supernatural journey. Look at its beginning, its middle, and its end. First, the beginning. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, said Jesus. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Peter was willing to ask something that no one else thought to ask or was willing to ask. And Jesus granted to him a supernatural power that no other human being has ever had, as far as we know. The power to walk on water. We forget that it's not only true that God himself can do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, but he actually can do through us immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Isn't it true? And how much we forget that, because we forget to ask. We don't ask Him to do great things through us. 
But Jesus himself said in John 14, the night before he was crucified, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. We under-ask. Let's just stop and apply for a moment. What are you trusting God for that only God can do? What ministry are you stepping out to do and you know if God doesn't support you, you will fail? I think we're just living natural lives and we're really called to live supernatural lives. We're called to do things that only God could do through us. Well, that was the beginning. The beginning was good. The middle wasn't so good. Okay? The middle wasn't so good. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. It's obvious to any trained reader of the Bible what happened. He steps out, he's doing well, but then all of a sudden, you know, he gets maybe smacked in the face by a near rogue wave or some mist comes or some sound occurs and he gets distracted and he stops looking at Jesus. And he starts to, to esteem the power of the waves to kill him as greater than the power of Jesus to save him. He starts to look at that and he's looking around as we talked about last week. And then he looks inward and says, can I do this? No, I cannot do this. And he sinks quickly. It's an issue of his faith. He has stopped focusing on Jesus' power. And instead he's sinking because he's focusing on his own strength. And he knows he can't do it. And he begins to sink and cries out, Lord, save me. And thus did Jesus say at that particular moment, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You will never find anywhere in the Gospels or in all of Scripture where Jesus coddles unbelief, where he comforts the unbeliever. He doesn't. He rebukes it. Why did you doubt? Don't you know who I am? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. It is me. I'm still me. I'm still here. He never coddles unbelief. And the end of the journey is Jesus' powerful rescue. In the end, he gets the glory. He will get the glory for your supernatural journey. He'll get the glory for mine. In the end, he gets all the glory. Beginning to sink, he cries out. Jesus reaches out and draws him up. What kind of strength would that take? But there's a supernatural power of Almighty God working through him, and he just draws him up instantly. He doesn't let him flounder. He doesn't let him sputter. He doesn't let him drown. He immediately rescues him. This is the compassion of Jesus. He's not going to let you drown. And so he reaches down and draws Peter up. The real issue going on in your life and mine right now is an issue of faith. Satan's real design on you is to destroy your faith in Jesus. That's what he's, at. That's what he's after. He wants to kill your faith. So Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? These are issues of faith. Peter has not yet had at this point his hardest trial of faith. We know when it is. You know it, don't you? It's the night that Jesus was arrested. You remember? And Jesus predicted, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. It's plural. To sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, particularly, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, then strengthen your brothers. Jesus, in that statement, shows us the center of his intercessory prayer ministry for us while we're going through trials. You may be going through the biggest trials of your life. You may not. You may have just gotten through some of those winds and waves and all the stuff that was happening. The water's coming in the boat and you think you're going to drown. But now you've gotten on the other side of it. You may be going through that. You may be yet, it may yet be in the future. But the object of all of that from Satan's point of view is to destroy your faith in Jesus. 
Now you say, that's impossible. Isn't it true? Once saved, always saved. Aren't we going to continue to believe in Jesus right to the end? Yes, we will. If we have been justified by faith, we will continue right to the end. But you know what? It's a dynamic process. Jesus had to reach up and grab Peter and hold him. Do you have faith independent of Jesus' energetic intercessory prayer on your behalf? Do you have it on your own? Is this your own faith? And Jesus is admiring it and continues to love you on the basis of it. That's not it. He gave it to you. He is the vine. We're the branches. He keeps sustaining that faith. And so he's interceding for you in the middle of your trial. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? He's saying, oh, Father, don't let her faith fail. Oh, Father, don't let his faith fail. He continues to intercede at the right hand of God that our faith may not fail. This is the issue. Now, the ultimate inevitable conclusion is the worshiping of Jesus as God. I loved Keith's song. Wasn't that incredible? Find the brother and encourage him. That was so sweet. And what was so incredible to me is the focus, again, on the yearning that I have in my heart to see Jesus. Someday I'll get to see him. And I will get to worship him. I'll get to fall down in his presence and say, you are God. You are almighty God. That's the outcome of this whole journey. That's where we're heading. Isn't that wonderful? What could be better than that? And so the outcome, even in this account, is they're worshiping him as God. You know, you're going to miss it in verse 27 because none of the translations really bring it out. But when they cry out, Jesus literally says, Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. What do the words I am mean to you? This this is God's name. He's saying, I am. I am God. This is the name by which the, the, the Jewish God, Yahweh, is known. He revealed himself to Moses in the flames of the burning bush, saying, tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am. This is what he says. I am. Don't be afraid. I am God. So the disciples react naturally to a supernatural power. Verse 33. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. This is God's end, his purpose, his worship in spirit and truth. And there's no jealousy in the Trinity. It's not like uh, the Father's like, hey, hey, wait about me. What about me? I'm the one who gave him the power. No, he wants us to honor the Son even as we honor the Father. That's his yearning. It says in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no jealousy in the Trinity. He's delighted to see the disciples worship and say, truly, you are the Son of God. What application do we take from this? Well, first, I've already given you solitary prayer. Do not think that you can get along better without solitary prayer than Jesus did. Look at your prayer life. How is it? I had to do that just as I was preparing the sermon. How is my prayer life? Is it what it needs to be? I was convicted that I need to spend more time in solitary prayer. I used to have a place up in Massachusetts. It was a beautiful field. And I used to go there. And I haven't found any place in the places I've lived since then, Japan and Kentucky and here, that's been quite like it. I take comfort in Matthew 6 where Jesus said, go into your room and close the door and pray to your fathers unseen. And that's good. But it's still good to have a place where you can go to be refreshed and renewed spiritually. To strengthen yourself. He restores my soul. Do you have that regular habit of private prayer? Now, what about this whole issue of allegory? Is he the Lord of our rocking boat? Is that what we would get out of here? All right. Jesus will rescue you from the storms of your life. What are the storms of your life? Well, don't mock it, okay? The problem with allegory is it denies that this ever really happened historically. I tell you, it happened. There are details. It was about the fourth watch of the night. The disciples are straining at their oars. 
Peter starts but starts to sink. Who makes this kind of stuff up? This, is, this actually occurred in space and time. But that doesn't mean that there are not spiritual connections to stuff you will face in your life even if you never get into a boat the rest of your life. And, and we have permission to do that because in Ephesians 4, it says if you get good teaching ministry, a good preacher, a good pastor and teacher to teach you, then you will no longer be infants, it says, blown and tossed Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men that are deceitful scheming. False doctrine, being under the influence of false doctrine, is like being in a storm-tossed sea, says Paul in Ephesians 4. Or how about this? James says, if you, if you lack wisdom, then ask God, but you better believe that he'll give it to you. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. This is a way of speaking. We know what storms are like. We know what, it, what it's like to be in the, under the influence of something that's more powerful than we are, that seems to mean us harm. We call those things trials. Jesus is watching over you in the middle of your trials to rescue you and help you. But I'm going to go further than that. He actually is bringing the trials to you. He has brought the storm into your life. He is not just managing the storm. He brought it. He has certain purposes in your life. Nothing comes to you except directly by the will of your Heavenly Father. And He is managing and protecting you in the middle of that storm and that trouble. And finally, look at Peter as a commendable example of faith. I know he failed in the middle of it, but he got up out of the boat. And how comfortable do we get in our Christian lives? You know what I'm talking about? How comfortable. We don't want to witness. We don't want to go to Burkina Faso on a mission trip. They need people. They need about five or six people. There's a meeting right after church. Maybe God's calling on you to go. Okay, allegory police, listen. To get up out of your boat and walk to Jesus. And he may be calling on you to go to Burkina Faso. Come and talk to me afterwards, okay? But there are applications. To be courageous, to step out in faith and do things that only God can do in and through you. What are you doing like that? I want to close with the example of D.L. Moody who made two commitments in his life that carried him the rest of his life. D.L. Moody made a commitment after hearing Harry Var Henry Varley, who is a fellow evangelist, say this, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. He resolved to be that man. A man fully consecrated to Jesus. That means at every moment I'm given over to doing the will of God. He said to R.A. Torrey, his co-worker, he said, if I believe that God wanted me to jump out that window, I would jump. Fully consecrated. Whatever God told me to do, I want to do. He made a second commitment, and this is very interesting. It came out in R.A. Torrey's uh, funeral sermon for him, a uh, tribute sermon uh, he preached, Why God Used D.L. Moody. He made a commitment that he would not allow 24 hours to pass over his head without witnessing to somebody about Christ. Now, that's pretty practical, isn't it? Are you courageous enough to make a commitment like that? Try a week. Let's start with one week, all right? For one week, you won't let 24 hours pass over your head without witnessing to somebody. There are amazing stories about Moody's commitment. Like once, late, late in the day, he hadn't witnessed anybody. It was about 11 o'clock, and he's going back to his hotel. He doesn't know what to do. And he sees a man by a lamppost, and he goes up and he starts sharing and says, uh, Friend, are you a Christian? The man is immediately offended. He says, How dare you? You don't even know me. You don't know anything about me. And you're asking me that question? And he knew that he was a preacher. He said, If you weren't some kind of preacher, I'd knock you into the gutter right now. Well, that man went and told some of, of D.L. Moody's sponsors that he, was, he had zeal without knowledge and he was rude and he was actually undercutting the work of Christ. 
Well, that man, the, the organizer, called D.L. Moody in. He was a young man at this point and said, you're doing more damage than good. You know, all this kind of thing. And, and it caused Moody to doubt some of his own convictions and all that. It was a very tough time until three weeks later, late in the night, not three in the morning, but late in the night, there's a loud knock on the door. And it's the same man. And he said, I've not been able to get your question, are you a Christian, out of my mind. I've come to the conclusion I'm not a Christian. And I've given my life to Christ, and I just wanted to thank you. There was another time, again late at night, he hadn't witnessed. He says, it's too late, I'm not going to find anybody. He goes out, and it's pouring rain. He sees a man immediately, a man. Oh, what do you know? Just like that. There's somebody. What do you know? There's somebody. And he's walking with an umbrella. So he runs out of his little hotel area, and then goes out, and it's pouring rain. And he says, do you mind if I share the... Share your umbrella? He said, no, no, come on. So there are two of them walking along under the umbrella. And he gets an idea and he says, do you know the security and the shelter that comes from following Christ? And so he uses the umbrella as a picture of salvation, led the man to Christ. This is like 1130 at night. I just think we don't step out in faith because we're afraid. We're afraid of what will happen. We're afraid of what will happen if we make a commitment to go to Burkina Faso or to not let one day go by in seven that I don't witness uh, for Jesus. We're afraid to try new ministries. Don't be. When you step out in faith, you will find the ground under your feet secure by the power of God, by the power of Jesus. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.